Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, today we're very excited to have Brian Hannigan with us. Brian is the president and CEO of Holy Cross Energy out in God's country in Colorado. Hi, Brian. Hi, Marty. Tell us a, a little bit about where you are. Um, I, I think you're, if you head west from I-70 and hang a, a left around Glenwood Falls, is that about where you are? It's about where we are. We're about two hours due west of Denver on Interstate 70. We actually serve the area of Vail all the way through to Glenwood Springs, uh, which is along the I-70 corridor. And then we serve the Roaring Fork Valley from Glenwood Springs up to Aspen and a little bit of the territory on the south side of the highway on the way out to Grand Junction. So it's a a pretty spread out, uh, diverse service territory. It's got a lot of mountains, a lot of challenges, but also a lot of opportunities. I remember going fly fishing with my son in Basalt. And I think you have an exciting project going on at Basalt regarding um, zero net energy use. And uh, tell us about that. Thanks, Marty. It's a fantastic project. It's called the Basalt Vista Affordable Housing Partnership. Uh, It was a brainchild of our local Habitat for Humanity chapter in the Roaring Fork Valley. They identified a need, as in most mountain towns that are heavy with uh, tourism presence, uh, a need for affordable home ownership opportunities for teachers and other families in the local workforce. Um, They secured some land right next to the Basalt High School in that area uh, and worked with the county, uh, Pitkin County, to put in all of the improvements, the roads, et cetera, So the school district donated the land, the county donated the improvements, Habitat, of course, donated the labor and the materials for the homes themselves. Um, They, uh, Basalt is an area that has a very strong commitment to clean energy, and as such had passed a local moratorium on the use of new natural gas for heating in particular. And so Habitat approached us and said, hey, you guys, we gotta do this as an all electric community Uh, But we'd like to do it in a very sustainable way. So can you partner with us to help design it in a a way that maximizes the use of on-site renewables as part of our power supply? Now, we had been working um, inadvertently. We'd been working with the National Renewable Energy Lab uh, with funding from uh, Energy Efficiency and Renewables and also with the Office of Electricity to do some modeling work associated with the grid modernization of our system. And it just so happened that that analysis was right in the area where uh, Habitat for Humanity uh, wanted to um, to come in to do work. And, and so uh, we had the modeling capability. We had done some hardware in the loop testing in the laboratory at NREL. And so it became a ready-made field demonstration site for us in partnership with uh, our local community. This is an all-electric, net-zero community of homes uh, first of its kind in rural Colorado. It's got to be one of the few in, in rural America. Do you know of anything like this anywhere? 
No, it, it, it is one of the first in, in rural America. And frankly, it's, it's also among the first in terms of a, a net zero all-electric community in the country. Um, there are similar developments going on now in utilities all throughout the country. But um, this is the first one that, that we're aware of in Colorado that's been taken on directly focused at the affordable housing segment. Where are we right now? Is it constructed, under construction? Where's this? So the project will have 27 houses when it's all done. Uh, those houses are in process of being constructed over the next year or two. We've completed work uh, and tenants, uh, owners have taken occupancy of the first four, which were the subject of our focus. Each of those four homes has a rooftop solar system about eight kilowatts in size, a uh, lithium ion phosphate battery with blue ion energy in, in the utility closet in each home a heat pump water heater, an air source heat pump, and a level two EV charger. And the thing that makes this uh, even more interesting project is that all of those devices, those distributed energy resources or DERs, are individually controllable with an interface and a set of algorithms that we've developed in consultation with uh, the National Lab and, and its partners. So we're able to manage, control, and dispatch those DERs as part of our distribution grid. And it's given us a really great insight into how uh, a more distributed energy-based future can actually operate in practice. And we're looking forward to scaling it up with additional developments in our area. These 27 houses, are they about each other or are they spread out across an area? It, it's all part of a same community. Uh, if you think of a neighborhood of duplexes and triplexes um, located on the hillside behind the high school, um, you know, think of a, a community that has a mix of distributed resources and also some community scale resources. As we build out the next set of homes in the 27, we're looking at maybe putting the storage in more of a neighborhood configuration as opposed to a, a battery, you know, a fourth the size in each of four homes. Maybe we have the same size battery, but it's located at the pad mount transformer, for example. Um, it still allows us to dispatch it in parts to support the needs of the grid or to support the reliability or resilience needs of the consumer, um, but it's possibly constructed in, in, a, in a safer and more resilient way. Will these 27 constitute a microgrid? Yeah, in fact, that's one of the really neat uh, aspects of the algorithms and the controllers that are used in this project. Um, we actually can set the amount of energy that passes through the controller between the distribution grid and the, the residents, we can set that number to whatever we need to set it to based on local grid conditions, a price signal, or in the case of a microgrid, we can actually set that interface to zero where the building is actually neither consuming from the grid, contributing to the grid. It's as though the grid isn't there. So I call it more of a functional microgrid, um, which is a different way of approaching resilience this area of basalt was the one that was most significantly impacted by a summer 2018 wildfire that left us one transmission pole away from losing the ability to serve not just the area of basalt, but also the Roaring Fork Valley and the city of Aspen over the July 4th holiday, which interestingly enough is one of their biggest days of the year. Let's step back for a second. And uh, you have had quite a history at NREL uh, in Golden as assistant lab director for energy system integration. And prior to that, vice president of environmental and renewable energy. You all oversaw quite a bit of research 
into cutting edge issues in terms of smart grid and grid evolution. How how much do you view that as a learning experience that you're actually now tapping and using it in a hands-on way as you help run Holy Cross Energy? This is very much a, an opportunity to translate research to operations. Uh, I first became familiar with Holy Cross Energy when I was at NREL and we were looking to bring industry partners into the energy systems integration facility, which was the facility and the part of the laboratory that I was uh, fortunate enough to manage from uh, 2013 to 2017. And it was through a series of discussions with Holy Cross about partnership that I became aware of the leadership opportunity on the utility side of the, of the ledger. And I, I think it's very rare that you see folks involved in energy research being able to come into an operational environment like a, a utility and have the ability to, to put their efforts where their mouth has been, to be blunt. Um, and I hope that we see more of that because I think having access to technologies, understanding how the partnerships work, understanding the art of the possible, you then come into this operational environment and you start to ask, how do we make it happen from a business model perspective? How do we make it from a company culture perspective, embracing innovation? all the while maintaining the safety and the reliability and the affordability of, of what we provide. Um, how do we develop the partnerships and the collaboration in our community as a utility the same way that a research institution would? So I think there's a lot of things that translate to actually make the innovations deploy at a scale and a pace that matters. You absolutely have to have the practitioners in there. And um, I, I'm really enjoying the opportunity to work with boots on the ground and and have some some great activities underway in our territory i'd like to uh slice the, the significance of this in a variety of ways first i want to ask you you have 167 employees uh serving your 43,000 members last time i checked mm-hmm. co-ops um, munis public power entities by the, their size, have not been a, um, a magnet for technologically savvy engineers and, and folks on the cutting edge. Do you think you're changing that, or are you putting the light of that by what you're doing here? I think so. I think we're changing it just by by showing what can be done with the Salt Vista and with some of the other projects that we have, with some of the actions that we've taken to procure cleaner supply, which incidentally saves us money. And, and that's the other thing, Marty, that I think is is happening now is that co-ops and munis have traditionally been focused, and rightly so, on the cost of electric service. And they always viewed research and innovation as sort of an extra cost on top of, of the normal course of doing business. I think with how technologies have evolved over the last decade, thanks in large part to big investments by the federal and, and state governments and the research contributions of the labs and the universities, we're now kind of flipping that narrative on its head where you almost need to embrace innovation and try different things in order to stay competitive. Um, We're able to, over the next couple of years, bring on new sources of wind and solar energy that will move us to a 70% clean energy content in a very short period of time and save our members money. If we didn't embrace the innovation and the challenge of doing that with these new more variable sources of supply, 
If we didn't think about how to build a distribution grid that was more flexible and capable of absorbing those new resources, we wouldn't be able to realize the cost savings in our power supply portfolio and ultimately pass those on to consumers as a more affordable source of energy. So, so I think it's, it's a completely different narrative now than even just a few years ago. And I think you see that playing out, whether it's an IOU, a muni, or a co-op. We're all sort of seeing the same thing. And, and what's great about the, the co-ops is once one co-op typically does something, the others look around and go, well, hey, how can I do that too? And there's a lot of sharing and comparing. And we've seen that just in Colorado with some of the other co-ops that have said, hey, I want to do something like that too. How did you do it? Can you help me? Can we partner together? It's a really encouraging trend if you're a fan of clean energy. I would imagine a lot of the players in this project the solar provider, the solar uh, unit providers, the heat pump uh, manufacturers, the inverters folks, because this is an experiment, are willing to give you equipment at, at a very good price. Talk a little bit about the economics of this. Do you, do you think it's ready for prime time or, or is it going to be a while? Well, in the case of Basalt Vista, it was the first of a kind. We were assembling a number of uh, technologies and providers together, and we were doing it in a way which, as befits a habitat project, was a contribution. So for us, it was an investment in what we think will be a future business opportunity to actually package up these technologies and work with our local installers and our local firms to create resilience options for homes and businesses that that want those as kind of a plan B in case the plan A of the grid um, goes down. But I will say that we have some great community partners, the solar provider at both the Salt Vista and at our own campus, SunSense, a local uh, Carbondale-based company, um, super great to work with. We've also worked with other national firms, including Powerfield, which has a very innovative ground mount solar uh, approach uh, that's really kind of pretty simple. It's gravel in buckets and solar panels on top of it. And it sounds very simple, but it's also very elegant. And for us, it's also great because it's located in an area on our campus that may someday be used for another purpose. And we now have a solar farm that can sit there and operate to support the campus until we need that space, and then we can pick it up and move it somewhere else. So I think there are a lot of really interesting partners to work with, and they're all eager to work with utilities to, to figure out who we are and how we tick so that they can scale up their businesses and ultimately have a bigger impact too. Is Habitat watching this as a possible model to take into into urban areas? Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, Habitat uh, nationally has, has featured this Basalt Vista project. And uh, really have to hats off to Scott Gilbert, who's the executive director there in, in the Roaring Fork Valley for his, you know, relentless bringing this together. Um, but it's now been nationally and even internationally featured as if we're going to build affordable housing, let's focus not only on the affordability of the structure, but let's focus on the affordability of the operations. The four occupants of the four homes, the families by the four homes that we've constructed with all of these technologies, um, since they've taken uh, up residence, they've paid very little in their utility bills on a kilowatt hour basis. They pay the minimum grid connection charge, but because they're generating most of their electricity locally, that gives them a flat and predictable energy bill to go along with a relatively affordable mortgage. And I think that if you look at affordable housing, 
both rural and urban area, this is the wave of the future, and it's got a lot of potential. What are some of the technologies that that um, you're most proud of that you might want to showcase that are really cutting edge? Well, I, I think I'm really proud of the fact that we've embraced electric transportation in ways that a lot of utilities are, are doing now, but we were one of the first out of the gate. We actually also pay for all of the installation costs if a municipality or a community comes to us and says, we want a fast charger in our in our park or in our town square or places where we know people will gather. Um, if our system is already built to handle that there, if it's in one of our favorite pre-screen locations, we'll go ahead and pay to put that in because we believe that electric transportation is good for the consumer and it's cheaper. It's good for the environment, of course, because of the reduced emissions, but it's also good for Holy Cross in terms of an increased demand of electricity. So it really meets that beneficial electrification test. And I think we're on the cusp of seeing the same thing when it comes to heating. Uh, in our mountain communities, heating, not cooling, is a big source of electric demand or gas demand in the, in the built environment. And through Basalt Vista and some other projects, we're getting a lot of good experience with heat pumps and how they work and work really well in cold climates uh, and how that can lead to electrification of the built environment, which again, has all those benefits. So I'm really excited about that. I think the next thing on the horizon for us, which um, would make sense given my background at, at NREL is how do you develop a distribution grid that has all of the visibility, the flexibility, the uh, controllability uh, uh, that you need to manage thousands, if not tens of thousands of those distributed assets all working in concert to keep the lights on. You have 43,000 customers. Is this kind of technology you think poised to move out rapidly once you demonstrate the case of how it works? I think it is to the extent that we can also demonstrate a financial case that works for the consumer. Um, a lot of the barriers that we've seen thus far in the uptakes around electric vehicle charging or heat pump water heaters or any sort of large capital expenditure has been the fact that the consumer is not walking around with thousands of dollars just ready to deploy at a moment's notice. Um, that's where I think some innovative rate structures that provide compensation for the benefits that DERs can provide, uh, peak load reduction, voltage uh, regulation, um, you know, some microgrid and resilience capabilities. Um, I think we can be creative about how those services can be paid for in a way that benefits both the consumer and the utility. I also think that the utility can play an important role by investing in these DERs as a utility asset the same way that we invest in the poles and the wires and the trucks today, we can invest in the battery storage and the PV panels and the, uh, the heat pumps and the water heaters going forward in a way that allows the consumer, in effect, to lease to own them. Um, we've talked about on-bill financing. We've talked about access to low-cost capital, which uh, co-ops can, can get in big chunks. How do we deploy that to the benefit of our members so that they effectively just call us up and say, I'd like the resilience package, please. Can you add it to my bill? And we take care of all of the procurement, the installation, the operations, the maintenance. We provide that electric service with these assets on site in a different way. And all the consumer sees is clean, affordable energy, but they see a second line on the bill, which supplements their existing line for kilowatt hour consumption when they need it. You mentioned the uh, forest fires that came through that area. Do you think as you move towards a more distributed network, 
uh, you'll have more resilience to, to ward off those kinds of threats? That is our hope, but it is not guaranteed. I think grid architecture plays an important role in that, as does the ability for us to um, have more visibility into where and, and when and how our system is moving uh, electricity around. The, the area in particular between basalt and aspen is served by one looped transmission line where both both ends of the loop pretty much go down the same right-of-way. So it is a uh, potentially critically impacted area in, in an event of a wildfire or a winter snowstorm or a cyber event or any sort of hazard that we might be thinking about that could impact the, the ability to deliver service. So we engaged the Rocky Mountain Institute in the summer of 2019 to bring the community together and say, okay, if this thing ever happens again, if we have another wildfire, which is not really if, it's sort of when, um, what are we going to have in place next time to be more resilient? And that's led to a discussion around um, in-ground in renewable energy resources in places like just south of the Aspen Airport, which is not the cheapest place to build solar, but in this case, it's one of the more resilient. Um, and that provides some measure of support for critical loads within that community. We've been talking with communities uh, up and down that valley about microgrids for critical infrastructures for town halls, police stations, gas stations, hospitals, and other medical services. So I think designing that architecture in a way that gives resilience to those critical resources, um, it allows you to think through the what happens if question. When that disturbance comes to pass, you need to be ready with a plan B, and you ought to use the blue sky days of today to plan on how you're going to execute those black sky days of tomorrow. I'm, I'm sure you still have many friends back at NREL. Given that you've been out in, in the field for three years, uh, kicking the tires of a real co-op, what would you like the folks back at NREL to start uh, uh, researching? What kind of problems and issues do you uh, attach greater importance to now that you've been out there you know, I think I would, would simply encourage them to double down on doing research projects that um, are at a, at a more intermediate stage of technology development that have some element of both laboratory and modeling simulation work alongside a field validation or a field deployment phase. Um, I think we have a lot of the technology that we need the ingredients are there in order to enable this this cleaner, more resilient, and more affordable energy future. Um, I just think that we need more more doing, at a, a, as I used to say, at a pace and scale that matters. And to the extent that they can affirmatively reach out to, and the department supports them doing so, that they can reach out to the the non-big actors. You know the. The Southern companies, the Dukes and the PG&Es of the world, they have tremendous staff. They have great research capabilities. Um, when I arrived at Holy Cross, we had a research staff of zero. Now we have a research staff of one. Um, but that one guy is fantastic and does so many different things. A lot of co-ops are like that, and they're not going to engage the laboratory in response to a call for proposals. The laboratory is going to have to approach them and say, hey, what can we do that will help you solve the problems that you face today? The other piece of it is marrying the technology development with the business model and the financial background that goes along with it. Because we can have all the best technology in the world, but if we don't deploy it in a way that is of benefit to the consumer, 
or benefit to the utility that gives them uh, a continued uh, economic future, then all that technology development isn't going to get us anywhere. And so I think paying attention to the finance side of things is also very, very important. I would imagine you're having about as much fun as you would have maybe more than if you were at a, a large IOU. Is that, that the case? Well, I don't know. I, I think uh, investor-owned utility, you have the opportunity of scale. You know, if you're a, a climate scientist like me and you care about doing something around uh, the global climate, you care about taking tons out of the atmosphere uh, or preventing it from, from getting in there. And, you know, Holy Cross's carbon footprint not too many years ago was about 1 million metric tons, which is, you know, a, a very small amount of the, you know, uh, billions and billions that we have going into the air every year. So I, I think you trade the ability to operate closer to the ground in a co-op with the community, with that collaboration, which I really dearly love. And we have a great region to serve and very engaged, very smart uh, people that we work with. Um, you trade that for a limited ability to move the needle on a more regional or a national scale. And, and, and what I would hope is that all utilities um, share the common interest in giving their customers what they want um, before somebody else does. Um, and, and I think that that's really important, whether you're an IOU, a muni, or a co-op. And, and, and I hope to see that uh, take hold as we go forward in time. Great. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Marty. Appreciate it, too. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Grid Talk. Thanks to Brian Hannigan for sharing his insights about changes in the electric sector, particularly in rural Colorado, that have implications for all of us. You have been listening to Grid Talk. Please send feedback or questions to gridtalk at nrel.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information or to subscribe, please visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.